Good evening, everybody. Um, I want to thank uh, Professor Charles Moll for inviting me to speak here tonight. I want to uh, thank uh, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism. Um, uh, this is a privilege for me to be here uh, tonight at uh, Harvard University. The subject matter that I would like to um, present tonight is uh, the attitudes toward Israel in Latin America. And when I talk about attitudes, I'm talking about attitudes at different levels. That includes government, society, intellectuals, and opinion leaders. And I will explain later why and how. But before I make the presentation about what is going on in Latin America, it is extremely important for me to point out one thing, maybe you have heard, you may have heard this already, that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism or anti-Israel bias, although are not the same thing in principle, there is still a strong connection. Why? Because Israel is the only Jewish state and is the only state that has come under the most disproportionate attacks by a well-organized campaign. Even if we assume or give the benefit of, of the doubt to those who are involved in this campaign, that their opposition in Israel, to Israel is not necessarily anti-Semitism, the question is that that campaign has an impact on a large number of Jews for whom the state of Israel represents their ultimate sense of security and a stronghold for the physical and spiritual survival of the Jewish people. In other words, when you question the legitimacy of Israel, when you are justifying enemies' actions beyond all proportion, when you are exonerating, let's say, the Palestinians from responsibility, and when you have a general double standard, hurt Jews and make them vulnerable. And in addition, this anti-Zionist rhetoric also attracts an abundance of classic anti-Semites and even neo-Nazis. And it is for that reason that I do not judge anti-Israel sentiments or anti-Israel propaganda based on the intention of the actor. Even the, the perpetrator may say to you, but I'm not an anti-Semite, I just, I am against Israel even if that intention is authentic and is genuine, and I believe in some cases it is genuine, I judge, I judge anti-Zionism or anti-Israel based on the consequences that such attitude has. And, and the consequences are mainly that it hurts the majority of the Jewish people who view Israel, as I said, as the ultimate bastion of physical and spiritual security for the Jewish people. So there is no question that anti-Israel bias is a form of anti-Semitism because of the outcome, not necessarily because of the intention of the perpetrator. And from here, we can talk about Latin America a little bit. Latin America has been dominated by the left since the early 2000s. Um, and what is interesting is that government policies have changed during the time that the left actually took over in Latin America. Of course, you have different types of left 
you have the moderate left in Latin America and you have the extreme left in Latin America and they are different. However, there is one thing that they have in common. And what they have in common is the influence of the Italian thinker and former president of the Italian Communist Party a long time ago, early in the, in the 20th century, is the works of Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci spoke about one key word called hegemony. Hegemony means domination that is not simply based on one single government, but it is based on a set of ideas, a set of col a culture that penetrates the mindsets of civil society. And if civil society accepts these ideas, domination is not simply government, but is also hegemony. Hegemony means people believe in the same set of ideas that the government believes in. All right? This is why hegemony is not just a matter of cold state policies, you know. It carries a culture that seeks root with, roots with civil society. Is, um, is a government that involves the media, social movements, and other elements in civil society. And it also has, has the so-called organic intellectuals. And the organic intellectuals are sort of opinion leaders that constantly provide justification to a new order, so to, so to speak. And of course, as I said before, the left is not the same all over Latin America. We have different type of left-wing governments. Um, we have authoritarian left-wing governments, for example, Venezuela. And you have also, you, we have democratic left governments, left-wing governments, for instance, Brazil. And it, 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 when you have democracies in the countries where democracy still prevails, it's obvious that it is more difficult to impose that type of hegemony, and there will be many, many ideas and forces that would counteract the power of the state or the power of the government. For instance, the Workers' Party in Brazil is the result of a slowly and carefully built new alliance that involves trade unions, social movements. Uh, in Venezuela, hegemony is created from above by the state, by co-opting groups, uh, either through populist policies um, with the help of, oil, of course, of oil largesse, and through uh, coercion and indoctrination. These things we don't have in Brazil. In Brazil, we have more of a connection with larger segments of civil society, uh, but not, there is no element of coercion as much. I will explain that uh, later. So, therefore, what I... Uh, but what is interesting, and this is crucial, is this point, which is the only thing that the democratic and the authoritarian uh, hegemonic left-wing governments have, so to say, they converge mostly, although not 100%, on issues related to foreign policy and foreign affairs. And of course, as we are going to see, Israel is one of the casualties of this hegemonic tendency in foreign policy. So what I'm going to do in this presentation is I will explore, we will explore 
changes in attitude toward Israel and the Middle East on four aspects. The first aspects would be government policies of these new governments of the left, the attitudes within sectors of civil society, the intellectuals, and finally, something that is not necessarily related to the so-called the lefty character or the socialist character of these new governments, I prefer to use the word left in this case, is changes within the Arab, the Arab communities in Latin America. All right? So these are the four aspects that I will explore. I'll try to be as brief as possible. First of all, let's talk about changes in government policy. It's very interesting. Latin American countries in 1948, when uh, the United Nations actually voted uh, the partition of Palestine, uh, most Latin American countries actually definitely voted for the partition with a few exceptions. And their policies have been consistently pro-Israel or tilting toward Israel until the year 1974. From 1974 to 2000, what we have is a more balanced position coming from Latin American countries. And mostly that is due as to the oil embargo. If you recall, after the Yom Kippur War that took place in 1973, we have an Arab oil embargo. As a result of that, many, many countries who depend, who, that depended on Arab oil uh, began to change their policies under uh, Arab pressure. And in 1974, if you recall, 1975, if you recall, we have the famous uh, resolution, Zionism equal racism. Now, there were countries that, as, as a result of uh, Arab pressure, actually moved away relatively in a radical way. One was Brazil, that actually voted for that resolution that equated Zionism with racism. Another country was Mexico that also voted, although it was for different reasons. It was an attempt to, by the president of Mexico, then Echeverria, to get closer to the non-aligned aligned group in the United Nations that was openly anti-Israel, and still is, by the way. Another thing that is happening between 1974 and 2000 is that Latin American countries represent only 13% of the General United Nations General Assembly. That means that there is an overwhelming pressure coming from the non-aligned countries to actually to tilt this position. But in, that, in, in some cases, you have also uh, countries such as Chile and others in Latin America that have been traditionally friendly to Israel that started, started moving more to the middle and putting what is called um, being a little bit more balanced. From the 2000s, and here it varies, 2000, 2001, 2003, the tendency consolidates, it, there is a tendency that consolidates more and more, and that tendency is to tilt toward the Palestinians as a result of the rise of the left to power. And this has nothing to do with Arab pressure. It has to do mostly with a policy that I will explain in a moment. Let me first 
talk about the difference between uh, the moderate, the extreme left and the moderate left. Who are the countries of the extreme left? Venezuela, Cuba, Cuba, Bolivia, Nicaragua, and Ecuador. Ecuador to a certain extent. Ecuador, Ecuador on the one hand belongs to that group, but on the other hand still keeps open a door for uh, you know, relations with the United States and the West. Venezuela is a country that since Hugo Chavez took over the reins of power in the year 1999, has become a revolutionary country. Um, the revolution is called the 21st century socialism. It rejects the neo neoliberal, neoliberal policies that were promoted by the United States, particularly in the 1990s, and rejects capitalism in general as a whole. It rejects, in a way, democracy because they view democracy as an ideology of the bourgeoisie, as an ideology of the oligarchy. They don't believe in democracy. They believe more in socialism. They believe that, uh, um, you know, if there is no equality, democracy is not worthwhile. It's not worthy. And is rapidly anti-American. And when I meet, when I talk, when 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 I talk about being anti-American, I'm not talking only about rhetoric, that they have an anti-American rhetoric, is a real policy aimed at reducing the power of the United States in the region. And that includes strong opposition to U.S. drug policies in Latin America. That means removal of the military bases that, helps the, that help the United States uh, to combat or to fight drug cartels. And uh, it means basically uh, alliances also with countries that are hostile to the United States and try to bring influences to the continent other than the United States, including the influence of Russia, China, and Iran. So these countries, particularly Venezuela, identify Israel with the imperialist West uh, and, of course, has literally adopted the anti-Israel Arab propaganda. Venezuela is the leader, of course, but it has influenced also the other countries. That group is called the ALBA group, all right? Venezuela and the ALBA countries identify with Iran, uh, given particularly its anti-imperialist, anti-American stand, and its defiance of the West. So the connection that these countries have to Iran is not just a matter of convenience. It's not just because they're interested merely in doing business. It is the result of a deep ideological affinity. You know, both aspire to remove American influence from their respective regions, and certainly they aspire to remove American influence from the world as much as they can. For instance, one of the things that we are seeing is an increasing Hezbollah presence in Latin America and particularly in the countries of ALBA, the ALBA group. Uh, Hezbollah and, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards are reportedly training Latin American revolutionaries in Venezuela and in other ALBA countries. For instance, there is a military school to train fighters for the Latin American revolutions, particularly the, um, 
where these guys are being trained in a city, in a military school that is located in Worms, Bolivia. When that, Warnes, when that uh, military school actually was inaugurated, you know, uh, when, uh, when this school actually was created in the opening ceremony, the defense minister of Iran was present there and it was, uh, it, it, it was reported then the presence of about 300 members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Venezuela also reportedly organized summits with the participation of terrorist organizations such as Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Colombian FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and ETA, which is the Basque uh, group uh, operating in Spain against the, the, the central government in Spain. Is known for the, you know, all these groups are known for their terrorism and their violence. Venezuela also provided uranium to Iran. Venezuela provided also passports to Iran, to the Iranians. And as a result of that, many of Venezuela's allies in the region have also sold false, false passports to Iran. And of course, there are increasing commercial relations between this group, the Alba group, and Iran. And not to speak about the fact that these countries are also helping Iran to avoid sanctions through their banking system. As you know, Iran has come under a sanction policy, for the, a sanction regime uh, for the last several years, almost five, four and a half years. And, um, and of course, the banking system of these countries is helping them avoid it. But what matters here is that Venezuela has adopted the typical Iranian Arab anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. For instance, uh, several years ago, we had a ride in a Jewish school, just a regular Jewish day school, over the assassination of a corrupt pro-Chavez prosecutor. Now, the Venezuelan authorities then argued that they suspect the Mossad might have been behind the assassination of that prosecutor. He was not even dealing with any issue related to Israel. But still, there was a symbolic right there in the Jewish school, in the Jewish day school, trying to find uh, some sort of tracks or some sort of evidence involving the, the Israeli intelligence. In another occasion, Chavez delivered a speech claiming that claiming Jews had taken the riches of the world. In other words, Jews as exploitators, as bloodsuckers. Vandalism against synagogue, synagogues was very common under Chavez. It stopped a little bit under Maduro. You know, Maduro is the new president of Venezuela since Chavez died two years ago. And of course, there is tremendous anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli propaganda in the media. Mario Silva Garcia is one of the most outspoken uh, media, mo uh, media voices that su supporting the government. He's a rabid anti-Semite, and he doesn't hide it. During the military Israeli military operation against Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, Chavez intimidated the Jewish population into condemning Israel. During the 2008-2009 Gaza operation, if you recall, cast lead, Venezuela broke off diplomatic relations with Israel and Bolivia immediately followed suit. 
it is reasonable to assume that the Iranians had a lot to do with that and the strong connection between these countries and Iran that actually influences them to have more and more an extremist ideology. What is interesting is that during Operation Protective Edge, the one that actually took place right now in the summer um, in Gaza, the Venezuelan president, Nicolás Maduro, again urged the, the Jewish community to condemn Israel, you know, and in a way tried to force the Jewish community to condemn Israel, saying this is the position of Venezuela, of the country, therefore you should adopt the same position. Of course, the Jewish community refused to do so. Uh, and as a result of that, the Wiesenthal Center appealed to the Organization of American States in order to defend the Jewish citizens, claiming the government of Venezuela cannot protect the, Jewish, the, the rights of Jewish citizens, but exactly the opposite. Bolivia, which is the most extreme country probably after Venezuela, defined Israel as a terrorist state and made changes in their visa procedures, requesting special visas from Israeli citizens to enter the country. President Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua, who is also an extremist, but is a little bit more pragmatic, declared that the Prime Minister Netanyahu is possessed by the devil. So what we can see here is that uh, Venezuela and its allies are view Israel through the eyes of Iran and, part, and as, part of the imperial, as part of the imperial West. They have adopted totally the anti-Zionist ideology of Iran and many of the Arab countries and many of the Arab groups, including even the terrorist groups, including Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, it is reasonable to assume, I would say that it is clear to me, that anti-Zionism has become, whether tacitly or openly, part of the Bolivarian ideology, part of the Alba Alliance's ideology. Um, um, they justified any acts of terrorism by, uh, uh, by the enemies of Israel, and of course they go along, is the, their attitude toward Israel is basically identical to the attitude um, that uh, the most extreme elements in the Arab world and the Muslim world have. Um, I would say that some other countries are more pragmatic and they don't, uh, they don't open their mouth within that group. Like, for instance, Ecuador, uh, it's not, they don't say too many things, the Ecuadorians, particularly the Ecuadorian government about Israel. In fact, the president of Ecuador praised Israel because of its technology and its achievements. Then what is more interesting is now the moderate left. The moderate left, although is more moderate, there are also problems and happens to be much more effective when it comes to international affairs. The moderate left is basically a social democracy. That means they keep the capitalistic system and, of course, they keep democracy intact, but, of course, support welfare policies, policies of redistribution, and, of course, they uh, have what is called, uh, um, a, they are particularly committed to help the poor and the, needed, and the needy. They, um, uh, their, their tendency is to, um, to lift um, as many um, poor people as possible from poverty. 
as many people as possible from, po po from poverty. These countries include Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, Peru, and, and Argentina, although the latter is moving closer to the extreme left. I would say that Argentina is now moving closer to the extreme left. These countries, along with the countries of the region, have sought to create what is called regional integration. In other words, the main leader of this block, I would say, which is not only the, the moderate left, it, I'm sorry, is Brazil views itself as the leader, not only of the moderate left, but of an entire new conception, I would say, called regional integration. What regional integration is, is not just an economic alliance. It is also related to the concept of Gramscian historic bloc. It is based on a new alliance. They want to see Latin America as being a very powerful bloc and an important player in world politics. That means that Latin America in itself, they want to form a powerful bloc, a power that would have a say in world affairs, which is not just uh, a power, that, you know, an alliance that comes together in order to achieve economic gain, but it is a major political force that also represents a counter-hegemonic force. So, although we have a democratic left and we have an authoritarian left, the historical bloc basically integrates both. And as I said to you, in the beginning of my presentation, where the authoritarian left and the democratic left converge is precisely in issues related to foreign policy, even though it's not 100%, all right? Because they all come together under this concept of regional integration that is also a political bloc. And that explains the protective attitude and solidarity that Latin American countries show toward radical countries such as Venezuela and the ALBA group. Even though the moderate left is not the same like the extreme left, they still view themselves as part of the same historical moment, the same type of hegemonic moment, because they are also left. And therefore, Brazil and all these moderate left-wing countries have protected the most extreme. And of course, they created organizations that actually consolidated and strengthened the, the so-called the, 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 the Latin American group. Like, for instance, the Union of South American Nations, or ONASUR, or the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which is CELAC. These were organizations that were created. They did not include the United States and Canada, like the, the Organization of American States does. And again, as I said before, it's not just... And these are not just economic entities, but institutions that reinforce a sense of purpose and political counter-hegemony. So, now what is the foreign policy of Brazil, which is the most important country in Latin America? And this is what I think we need to pay attention. Brazil has played, uh, uh, has been playing a very important role in foreign policy. First of all, they see themselves as a growing, a growing economy. And as a result of that, also their political ambitions have grown, have raised. Uh, Brazil 
first of all, there are a number of elements that Brazil believes uh, when it comes to international relations. First of all, Brazil reaffirms multipolarity as against unipolarity. That means Brazil recognizes that there are a number of countries that are emerging in the world, like for instance, China, India, Turkey, South Africa, Russia. And Brazil believes that they belong to one of these, uh, uh, these groups, namely the new emerging powers in the world. And as such, and as such, Brazil demands to play a role in this multipolar world. That means they reject the unipolarity, what is called the unipolar world dominated by the United States. So that means Brazil is not necessarily anti-American in the same way that Venezuela is, but Brazil is now playing a political game against the United States that is very similar to the one that the Europeans under the leadership of De Gaulle at one point played. Namely, they, they are seeking to counterbalance the power of the United States. So that's very important. So Brazil sees itself as playing a role on issues related to peace and security. And this is why they also seek a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council. But what is interesting is that they have taken several initiatives. For instance, with Turkey, they try to solve the problem of the Iranian nuclear threat and the Iranian nuclear program. And then Brazil, along with Turkey, they pro proposed um, um, a solution to the Iran nuclear uh, standoff, the Iran nuclear uh, uh, challenge, by presenting a proposal that eventually failed totally to stipulate that Iran stop uranium enrichment or even that it allowed inspectors in their nuclear facilities. Um, therefore, it was automatically rejected by the United States and the European powers. And Brazil got so angry that they voted against the sanctions imposed on Iran by the United Nations Security Council then. So you can see the kind of role Brazil is playing. Because Brazil, again, because Brazil sees itself as an emerging power, he, and this is crucial to understand the, the position toward Israel, he has sought South-South alliances to enhance its stand, its stand in the world. So there were a number of Latin American Arab summits that took place in the last decade and were organized mainly by Brazil. It's very interesting. There was one in 2005 and another one in 2009. Uh, the Latin American Arab summits adopted resolutions that were akin with the line of thought of the Arab world. For instance, I'll give you an example. They supported Sudan during the crisis in Darfur, when in fact there was a situation of genocide, when the Sudanese government was responsible for committing genocide against the population of Darfur. Secondly, the resolutions also called for the elimination of the Syrian Accountability Act, which is a series of sanctions imposed on Syria in the early 2000s. 2000. Yeah. And then they supported, the, another resolution supported an international conference to study the definition of terrorism. And this is typical because the Arabs so far have undermined every attempt in the United Nations to come up with an anti-terrorist policy because 
they um, because they always demanded made demands that undermined uh, uh, um, uh, the definition they undermined the anti-terrorist measures by saying well let's define terrorism so according to the Arab definition there is terrorism there is state terrorism so they claim that for instance Israel is a, is a terrorist state so at this point, Brazil didn't say anything like that, but definitely supported what is called an international conference to study the definition of terrorism before they even dealt with terrorism. That means he basically uh, washed off the whole, uh, I'm sorry, Brazil basically washed off the whole issue of terrorism. So against this background, Brazil becomes the first country to recognize Palestine, uh, followed by a number of other countries in the region. Uh, uh, many other countries in the region also followed, were the first one to recognize the state of Palestine without demanding the Palestinians to reach that state or to achieve that state through, ne through negotiations with Israel. The only country who did that was Chile, and then Chile was ruled by, um, uh, uh, by a conservative president, Sebastián Piñera. Sebastián Piñera is the only one country that adopted a position that basically said we recognize a Palestinian state, but that Palestinian state needs to be the outcome of negotiations between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. The rest not. It was a unilateral recognition. What is interesting is that Brazil, which was a leader of this movement, which was the leader of this movement, said that the United States is not in a position to achieve peace in the Middle East, suggesting that the United States was biased, probably, toward Israel, in, in, in favor of Israel, and therefore cannot be a, a, an honest mediator to solve the Middle East conflict. So who is the honest mediator? Probably Brazil. That is according to them. You know, Latin American countries can mediate and maybe find a solution in, to the Middle East. What is interesting about Brazil is that Brazil, these relations with the Arab world also made Brazil do things that are absolutely unprecedented in the history of Brazil. For instance, Brazil visited, I'm sorry, the president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, uh, visited Israel and called to tear, to, uh, to tear the wall and the fence that separates the West Bank from Israel, even though that fence was built in order to prevent um, penetration of, te of terrorists uh, from, from the West Bank. But but uh, President Lula called to tear that wall, to tear that fence. And worse than that, he refused to visit Herzl, to Herzl Tom during that visit to Jerusalem. Herzl is the founder of Zionism. So he basically took a typical Arab position. Well, the Arabs wouldn't even have visited Israel. But the fact that he refused to visit Herzl's tomb, I think is highly symbolic in terms of how close he became to the Arabs. But the, what is interesting is that Brazil's recog unilateral recognition of the state of Palestine is basically a, a symbolic move aimed at challenging the power of the United States. And certainly the position of Brazil has nothing to do with dependency on oil. It has to do with this ideology of creating this powerful left-wing bloc and also challenging uh, foreign policy, uh, the, the hegemony of the United States in world affairs. 
And of course, this had uh, consequences later for government policies of Latin, uh, I'm sorry, for, for policies of Latin American countries toward Israel. For instance, during the flotilla incident um, and Operation Protecting Edge, uh, the most moderate leftist Latin American countries took a prejudice and intentional political attitude against uh, the state of Israel. You know, for instance, during the flotilla incident, if you recall, that was an attempt by a Turkish boat to come and break the, the blockade against Gaza. Uh, and there was an incident there. Nine people in the flotilla uh, actually died. And the, most Latin American countries, in a matter of hours, issued a condemnation of Israel without even looking into the facts. Um, during Protective Age, namely the last operation in Gaza, Brazil, Chile, El Salvador, Ecuador, and Peru temporarily withdrew their ambassadors from Tel Aviv, uh, protesting that Israel actually was acting disproportionately against uh, Hamas. It's very interesting because even the Arab countries who have diplomatic representations in Israel did not do that. You know, neither Egypt nor Jordan um, withdrew their ambassadors from Tel Aviv, but they did. Uh, even the government of Uruguay, traditionally a very friendly country, uh, although did not remove its ambassador, described the Israeli military action as genocide, something without even any, with, with total disregard for the definition of what genocide is. Mercosur, which is uh, the, the most important, the main South American trade bloc, is a really is a trade bloc uh, composed by a number of South American countries, called on the United States to, to I'm sorry, on the United Nations to investigate Israeli war, war crimes. And of course, there was no word about uh, Hamas aggression, including the fact that Hamas attacked Israel, threatened, threatened to kill its people, violated multiple ceasefires, or cynically used their own citizens as human shields. So what we are seeing here is a change in the policies of Latin American countries that have traditionally been friendly to Israel, becoming openly, uh, I wouldn't say hostile, but openly uh, biased against Israel, unilaterally biased against Israel. And this is not coincidental, as I explained. It has to do with the new alliances that they are seeking in the world as a result of the fact that they have formed a new bloc. So, contrary to the countries of ALBA, which are more extreme, Brazil and the rest of the moderate left countries believe in the two-state solution and do not have a policy of delegitimization of Israel. The ALBA countries delegitimize Israel. They totally adopt the Iranian extreme Arab position. These countries, the moderate countries of Latin, of Latin America, believe in the two-state solution, believe in the right of Israel to exist. But yet, the Palestinian cause seems to provide this country with another ideological tool to ingratiate themselves with the third world countries and reaffirm their independence from the United States. So this is what is important here. Um, I mean, I see that time is going by. Um, how much time do I have? Oh, you can, as long as you'd like to go. Terrific, thank you so much. So civil society, which is another, uh, is, is very interesting because the importance of civil society in Latin America is as follows. 
We are seeing now the rise of new social movements of previously marginalized groups, uh, including uh, indigenous groups and poor groups from the shanty towns that never ever had a political voice. All of a sudden, they are becoming very, very conscious and are being uh, and and they mobilize themselves politically. Uh, many of these movements support a radical social and political agenda, although these views vary from country to country and even from group to group. For instance, one of the most important movements uh, is the landless movement in Brazil, uh, in, in Portuguese, Movimento Sem Terra, that means is the, yeah, the landless movement, and is one of the most important sources of grassroots support for the Workers' Party. The Workers' Party is the party that has been ruling Brazil since the year 2003. Um, the, the landless movement actually has strong connections to, pal to Palestinian solidarity movements. Uh, they support a one-state solution and not a two-state solution. Of course, as you know, those who support the two-state solution, uh, of course, you have the Israeli right-wing people, very right-wing people who support the, the, the one-state solution, and they do it for the reasons. But most of those on the other side, on the Arab side, that support the one-state solution, they do it because they wish to remove the Jewish character of Israel. The MST, the, what is called the Landless Movement, has strong connections with Palestinian solidarity groups and with Arab groups. Even the largest Brazilian trade union, the CUT, which is a huge support for the Workers' Party government, considers Israel an apartheid state and uh, a state that practices state terrorism against the Palestinians. In other words, it considers Israel a terrorist state. By the way, we are talking about the CUT is the largest Brazilian trade union and is one of the most important sources of support by, for the current Brazilian government. They are clearly anti-Zionist, they clearly view Israel as an apartheid state, and they clearly view Israel as a terrorist state, while obviously uh, giving a pass to the Palestinians no matter what they do. Looks like everything they do is justified. And that sometimes has economic consequences. For instance, the landless movement requested Mercosur to abort the free trade agreement between this entity and Israel. All right? And that attitude has caused some successes. For instance, uh, a few months ago, the state of Rio Grande do Sul, which is one of the most important states in Brazil, uh, canceled an important agreement of cooperation with the Israeli company Elbit. Uh, and who was involved behind the BDS movement, the, the movement of boycott, divestment and sanctions, actually approached, had access to the Brazilian social movements as well as the trade unions, you know, like CUT, which is the largest trade union. And they all together formed an alliance, uh, alliance that demanded the authority to cancel the contract with Elbit. So that means it's having also, uh, you know, the attitude of civil society is crucial. Then you have the groups that actually emerge in Argentina, like the Piqueteros. Uh, they developed a strong anti-establishment ideological unity, uh, also a very radical group. Much of the leadership of this movement is linked to the government of Venezuela. Uh, they have developed obsessed love for Iran. By the way, it's not everyone in the Piquetero movement, but some key figures. Uh, some of them, some of these leaders have traveled 
to Iran with funds paid by the Venezuelan government. One of them is Luis Delia. Luis Delia today is part of the close circle of, of the Argentinian president, uh, uh, Cristina Kirchner. Delia expressed open support for the Iranian regime. Uh, he was um, temporarily um, removed from the government, but then he was restored. Um, and then you have another group called Quebracho, which is a very violent group, also with links to the Kirchner government, uh, very uh, connected to the Iranian embassy in Buenos Aires. And of course, they have organized a number of violent, uh, uh, violent um, acts or violent actions against the Jewish community and against the, um, uh, the pro-Israel communities in general. Um, it's interesting because the leader of Quebracho, whose name is Fernando Esteche, and Mr. Delia, the one that I told you that actually traveled, is very close to Iran and to the government of Venezuela and traveled to Iran with money, with Venezuelan money, were accused by the late prosecutor Alberto Nisman, who just died, was either killed or was forced to commit suicide. Uh, two weeks ago, and Alberto Nisman was the one who accused these two of being liaisons between the government of Argentina and the government of Iran when the Argentinian government tried to deviate the investigation of the 1994 bombing of the Jewish headquarters in order to ex exonerate Iran from responsibility. So um, there are other groups that are openly supportive also of the most radical uh, elements in the among the Palestinians. For instance, the Mapuche Indian in Chile, I'm sorry, the Mapuche Indians in Chile that are seeking to also have an independent autonomous uh, entity and separate themselves from the Chilean state. Uh, some of the human right, some elements in the human rights movement in Argentina have also adopted a strong anti-Zionist um, um, position. And finally, those social movements or those movements that have not adopted necessarily positions against Israel and have basically uh, concentrated or focused on their own, in their own, on their own uh, uh, agenda have been approached by uh, groups associated with the BDS movement. For instance, it's very interesting because uh, CONAI, which is the largest indigenous group or, or organization in Ecuador, adopted a series of policies that had nothing to do with the Middle East. And then they had a number of signatures that supported them. And one of them was this group, Active Steel, which is an Israeli group that supports the boycott, divestment, and sanctions. I'm going to touch upon uh, public intellectuals. As I said before, uh, intellectuals are playing in the left a very important role, particularly in spreading out the ideas. We, uh, we have certain uh, intellectuals that have clout in society or, or at least clout in the left and have associations with the left-wing government that have become very outspoken and, of course, also on the issue of Israel. One of them is Frei Beto, which is an influential intellectual of the left, closely associated with liberation theology and the Christian-based communities. 
Uh, also strongly associated with the Brazilian social, social movements, particularly the landless movement. Uh, he's a big fighter for social justice. He's a fugitive of the right-wing Brazilian dictatorship of the 1970s. Although he's a little critical of the Workers' Party, he has always supported the, the Workers' Party. And look at what this intellectual, Frei Beto, argues. Um, Iran is a government that refuses to submit itself to the interest of the United States. Its nuclear plants are connected to their national development. It's not an aggressive politics policy. The U.S. finds intolerable that Iran would develop uh, nuclear material or nuclear capability because the United States doesn't want any new country to grow. And therefore, uh, it's not that Iran is a rogue state, it's not that Iran is a terrorist state seeking a nuclear weapon, but Iran is a normal state that used to be small and now is growing and they are seeking nuclear capability and therefore the United States cannot tolerate that. Of course, the, the argument is absurd. Iran is a heroic state struggling against U.S. imperialism, against U.S. imperialism. Iran is a victim of U.S. imperialism and is trying to defend itself from such aggression. And of course, during Operation Protective Edge in Gaza, Beto joined a letter signed by a group of intellectuals calling on world nations to impose an embargo on Israel, uh, similar to the one imposed on South Africa, accusing Israel of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And of course, Fray Beto views the Jewish state as associated with U.S. imperialism and of course loves Iran, loves Syria, loves Libya. This is an influential intellectual. This is not just somebody who writes on the margins of the margins. All right. Then you have the Open Letter Group. The Open Letter Group is clearly a group of journalists, artists, and academicians that are identified with the government of Christina Kirchner. Remember, the Kirchner government, the Kirchners have been in power since uh, 2003. It's now 12 years, almost. Uh, these are organic intellectuals recruited by Kirchnerism. Uh, the group is clearly nationalist, populist, it opposes neoliberalism and the subordinate role of Argentina in a globalized economy. And they also support Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, open letter blasted Israel in the first Gaza war, saying that Israel was committing uh, war crimes against the Palestinian people. Um, and basically saying that uh, condemning the blockade on Gaza. And of course, the group continuously refers to the ruthless and brutal Israeli invasion against a defenseless civilian population in Gaza. Um, so the Palestinians are portrayed as innocents. The Israelis are portrayed as brutal and genocidal. Uh, and of course, the word terrorism or Hamas are not even mentioned. That means totally ignoring, uh, you know, this is a group associated with the government of Christina Kirchner. This is a very vocal group. Now, who is the leader and the founder of this group called Open Letter? It's a Jewish man, Ricardo Forster. Ricardo, that's his name, Ricardo Forster. You know, occasionally he teaches in the University of Maryland according to his curriculum. Uh, 
is very interesting because he, because he's Jewish, he also writes about Israel and writes about the Jews. And look what Forster argues. He argues that Theodor Herzl's Zionism was inspired by Otto von Bismarck nationalism. <laughs> of course, the argument is so simplistic because although it's true that Zionism was influenced by certain currents of nationalism, like for instance, Italian nationalism more so, uh, that doesn't make Theodor Herzl's Zionism like an attempt to make another uh, militaristic German uh, Germany the way Bismarck did, uh, um, or the, 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 the way uh, Bismarck built Germany back in the 19th century. Uh, and then he claims that Israel is more like a Sparta, chauvinistic and militaristic, in contrast to the humanistic and philosophical Athens. In other words, Israel is militaristic like Sparta and is not cultivated like, Ath like Athens. Israel is a military nation, and therefore it has wounded Israeli society. This is what he claims. What is interesting is, uh, and I'm not going to argue necessarily, but just, just for you to say a few words. In Israel, he claims that Israel is not a humanistic society, it's like only militaristic. In Israel, Israel today creates 4,000 books or publishes 4,000 books a year. And I can assure you that most of these books are not military treatises. Uh, there is a very vibrant cultural and intellectual life and humanistic and artistic life in Israel that doesn't exist in the Palestinian street. There is a democracy. So for um, even though we recognize that Israel is a country that uh, obviously has a strong military and every citizen is a, is a, is a soldier and every soldier is a citizen, uh, that doesn't make Israel into a Sparta, eliminating the Athenian character of Israel. So the argument is absurd from the beginning. Interesting, Forster claims that Palestinians are victims of a terrible injustice. Auschwitz serves as a means to justify anti-Palestinian aggression. That is exactly what the Palestinian Arab propaganda is claiming. And then he claims Israel's, Israelis do not want peace with the Palestinians or coexist with them. Palestinian society is humanistic and democratic. Hamas does not reflect the real Palestinian society. The, the argument, again, I, I don't know whether it's worthwhile for me to argue with that, but uh, Israel is a democratic society and there, are a, there, there is a huge peace movement in Israel something that we don't have in the authoritarian Palestinian society. And how he reaches the conclusion that Palestinian society is democratic when in fact they are not living under democracy, and in fact they are living under continuous incitement. And obviously, I mean, the man is a philosopher. Obviously, I don't know whether he ever read Kant or not, but one of the theses that actually Kant brings about, brings, that has never been refuted, is that democratic countries are more likely to be peaceful because the culture of democracy creates a culture of tolerance and interaction and solidarity that eventually tends to resolve conflicts in a peaceful manner. We'll always choose peace before, the, before war. Uh, there, this is why we have so many, we have relatively a large peace camp in, in Israel and we have songs of peace in Israel and all kinds of things. 
And the Palestinian society, you, you cannot find anything like it nearby. But Mr. Forster reaches the conclusion that the Palestinian society is a democratic one, while the Israeli society does not seek peace. Uh, I'm glad I'm not Forster, because I don't know how you can defend these arguments. Then you have Eduardo Galeano, a popular Uruguayan writer. He became well-known at a very early age when he wrote a famous book called The Open Vines of Latin America, um, which is widely quoted. Uh, Eduardo Galeano beca became now a mainstream intellectual leader, of course, because also in Uruguay we have uh, the government of the left, a government of the left. He claims that uh, Israelis kill civilians on purpose to, to test its military equipment. In other words, Israel kills civilians on purpose in order to test its military equipment. Um, Aus like Forster, he claims that Auschwitz serves as a justification for Israeli atrocities and that Israel cynically uses the Holocaust. But here you have another case of another influential intellectual, and this is Adolfo Pérez Esquivel, who is, um, he won the peace, uh, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he claims that Israel is responsible for the conflict in Gaza. He claims that Israel is a terrorist state. And of course, he initiated an international letter seeking a boycott of, on Israel. He condemned the Western intervention in Libya and Syria as imperialist enterprises and claimed that Iran, Hezbollah, Assad, Gaddafi are all anti-imperialist players. What is interesting is he wrote an open letter to President Obama and he suggested that 9-11 could have been or was a self-inflicted attack and a perfect excuse to launch a war against Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. So that's the conception of these intellectuals that have become mainstream. So the distortion of facts regarding the Middle East conflict by mainstream intellectuals or organic intellectuals of this new historical bloc, so to say, contribute a great deal to the legitimization of Israel, even though the left-wing moderate countries still support a two-state solution and support Israel's right to exist. They contribute a great deal to the delegitimization of Israel because the propaganda is like that. So the next group that I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to be very brief and very, you know, so that we can allow for questions and answers, is the Arab population, Arab Muslim population in Latin America, is the Arab and Muslim population. Remember, not all the Arabs are uh, Muslim, they are Christian. By the way, there is an Arab population in Latin America that is pretty, is pretty large. They immigrated to Latin America at the turn of the 20th century. They came and they were all subjects of the Ottoman Empire and they actually immigrated to these lands uh, for a better life. Many of them were Christian, of course, and many of them also assimilated. Uh, you know, there, there were mixed marriages uh, intermarried, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was never a source of conflict or tension between the Arab communities and Israel. But all of a sudden, and apparently since the Second Intifada, we, which began more or less last from 2000 to 2003, 
we are seeing a deterioration of this situation. More and more uh, Latin American citizens of Arab origin are mobilizing for the Palestinian cause or for the Arab cause. Islamic websites flourish in Latin America that include a substantial component in, of Israel delegitimizing. And many of these websites, websites have been promoted by Iran, but not only by Iran. Radical Muslims have tried to penetrate natural Arab or Muslim communities. But not only that, I mean, that also happened in Christian communities. So that means it's not just radical Islam that is transforming these ancient Arab communities, but it, it is also Palestinian activists that are doing that. For instance, uh, relations between, in Argentina, relations between the Argentinian Arab Federation and the organizations of the Jewish community has been extremely good uh, all these years, all these decades, you know, more than a century. But it's interesting, in December 2010, the Arab organization issued a communique condemning the organized Argentinian Jewish community for their opposition to Argentina, Argentina's unilateral recognition, unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Uh, likewise, it accused the Jewish community of being loyal to Israel and not to Argentina. And third, that organization also claimed that the Palestinian people had been under occupation for 62 years, 62 years then. That means that they consider Israel within the borders of 1948 as not legitimate, also as occupation. What is interesting is that Ferab, namely the Arab organization, also accused the Buenos Aires police of being um, um, of being part of, of being subordinated to the state of Israel because the spokesperson of the Buenos Aires police was Jewish. Something totally ridiculous. And with this I finish, and then I will open up to questions. The Chilean community, which are mostly Palestinian Christians who actually also immigrated to Chile well before the Balfour Declaration, have also had good relations with the Jewish community throughout all these decades, more, you know, almost 100 years. All of a sudden, things are changing in Chile as well. And I'll give you an example. A Chilean senator of Palestinian Christian origin, Eugenio Tuma, by the way, Eugenio Tuma was also the coordinator of the, of the Michelle Bachelet campaign, the president of Chile. Pointed out that young Israeli tourists are IDF reservists that, reservists that represent a danger for Chile's territorial continuity. Now, very interesting. As you know, <coughs> when uh, Israeli soldiers actually finish their uh, service in the army, they usually take a trip. Some of them go to Thailand, some of them go to uh, China, to India, and some of them go to Latin America, and they love this southern Chile, the Patagonia. And they love also southern Argentina. So they come with their backpacks. And basically it's interesting that Mr. Tuma, who is a Chilean senator, and he's also the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Chilean Senate, claim that these guys are coming here not just as tourists, but are coming here to conquer part of Chile's territory. 
is interesting because Mr. Tuma was alluding to an infamous anti-Semitic myth according to which the Jews want to take possession of the Patagonia. This is a myth that originated among neo-Nazis in Argentina called the Planandinia in Spanish uh, that made the claim that, that Jews are trying to take over the Patagonia. The idea is inspired in an idea that floated at, at one point um, and even Herzl raised that, that Jews can resettle and maybe create a commu an independent community in Argentina, something like that. That is something that actually never came to fruition because the Jews said, no, we, we can only come back to Palestine. This is where we belong. But it's very interesting that the guy is talking about simple tourists and saying that they are coming to implement the Andinia plan, which is a myth like the protocols of, of the elders of Zion. Um, at one point, one of these uh, um, Chilean tourists actually caused a fire in one of the forests in Patagonia. And uh, the same guy, Senator Tuma, with another, uh, with another uh, Congre Chilean congressman of Palestinian origin, pointed out that thousands of Israelis entered our country as if Chile were their home. So the state of Israel should take responsibility for the damage since these tourists are funded by Israel. Something totally absurd. You know, these tourists are just tourists, came on their own. So there is a process of radicalization in the local Arab communities which makes us believe that elements in the Middle East have worked hard to exacerbate those feelings. And this is a very serious development as it represents a major victory for the narrative of Arab and Muslim rejectionists and for the movement that seeks to delegitimize Israel. Just to conclude, the war of ideas is also taking place in Latin America. And I'm going to quote a journalist that is associated with the Kirchner government in Argentina that happens to be Jewish, by the way, who pointed out, what matters about Gaza is what it represents. In the 1960s was Vietnam and Cuba. That means it is not about Gaza. It is about the struggle between the oppressors and the oppressed. And that's the way this simple concept has penetrated civil society, groups within civil society, and to a certain extent, certain governments in Latin America as well. Beyond that, Palestinians symbolize the self-affirmation of the left in Latin America. You know, solidarity between the oppressed in Latin America and the oppressed in Palestine, so to say, so to speak. That means the structural conditions in Latin America make a fertile soil for the delegitimizing, delegitimization of Israel. And of course, part of this wrath against Israel is directed to the United States. Because the United States is being blamed for poverty and misery in Latin America in the same way that Palestinians and Arabs blame Israel for their poverty and their misery. In other words, this accusation has no foundation, but is pretty convenient from an ideological point of view. 
is a sort of scapegoat, if you wish. Israel is perceived as an extension of the United States. Um, and to conclude even more, I would say that the anti-Israel ideas, because of this idea of hegemony, because of this idea that the anti-Israel thing element is penetrating the minds and that are becoming, is becoming in a way mainstream, represents a challenge that is likely to outlive left-wing governments. In the same way that the anti-Israel bias promoted by the Soviet Union remained and stayed particularly in elements in the, of the left, and anti-Israel bias actually survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, the truth does not matter. That's the reality. The fact that Israel offered compromises in Camp David in 2000, in Taba in 2001, and also in 2008, it doesn't matter. I don't know whether these people know about it or they even care that that happened. Israel is seen in a negative way and is seen in a negative way because that's the way it's supposed to be seen. There is no compromise. It's a very stubborn ideology. But it's not just a war of propaganda against Israel. It is also a negative factor that interferes in peace efforts and it is also a serious blow to the local Jewish community for the same reason I explained in the beginning. If the Jewish state, the only Jewish state, is coming under attack, it penetrates the soul and, and it, it, it causes fear among members of the Jewish community. Um, and it will be difficult to overcome such a world of ideas unless more balanced views are presented in the media, the academia, and the political system itself. This is why it's important to know to know the truth and to be able to defend the ideas. The idea is not here to defend everything Israel does. You know, it's impossible to defend everything a government does. Like you can, we cannot defend everything that the American government does. We cannot defend everything that the French government does or the British government does. But when this campaign of defamation begins, if you don't stand up to that, is likely to stay in the minds of people because it's vilification. And here, what applies is the Goebbels principle. The more you repeat a lie, the more it penetrates the minds of the people and therefore eventually it, ends in the, it, it becomes true. What is a lie, it's true. And many people, some of the people who believe in all these lies are innocent people are people that truly believe in those lies, genuinely believe in those lies. In Latin America, there are no Middle East departments. You can count with the, uh, with the fingers of one hand how many people actually know the facts about the Middle East. Um, and I believe some of these challenges are also your challenges. I think in America, we don't have the same problem that we have in Europe or now in Latin America. Because in Latin America, all these problems are relatively new. But they have been evolving for a while. So thank you so much. I appreciate your, your, uh, your being here. And thank you so much. I also want to thank Ijo.
She's uh, the the administrative assistant of this wonderful program, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism. She's been terrific. And thank you all. Thank you all for being here.